Hello, everyone, and welcome to tonight's episode of Rise Up, Ignite Your Life, the Battle to Be podcast. My name is Krista Fee, and tonight I have with me an amazing special guest, Keith Notek, who has an entire lifetime of amazing service. He has been on the bottom and the top and everywhere in between in just about every law enforcement role you could possibly have. And he has been involved in some book projects and he has his own autobiography and recently was his autobiography was turned into a film. So he has an amazing journey to share with you guys and some amazing words to live by that you won't want to miss. So please welcome Keith Notek to the show. Hi, Krista. <laughs> I'm really excited to finally have you to have you here with us. I got to see the the, the movie. Oh. And it was amazing. And my husband watched it with me. And it was the most perfectly honest representation that I think I've ever seen. And I was really excited to share that with people. Would Thank you, you. Tell us about your experience with making the, making the movie before we get too deep into the story. Yeah, so, huh. well, I, I, I gotta say, I never thought in a million years I'd be, you know, talking to people like you on interviews, never would have thought in a million years that I, I would have written, you know, a book much less two or three, um, nor be involved in a film. But um, the my first book, um, From Sorrow to Amazing Grace, I turned it, or it was turned into a film. It's uh, basically about my life before, during, and after law enforcement. And um, some of the struggles I went through, um, you know, dealing with post-traumatic stress, um, dealing with alcohol abuse. And, um, uh, you know, I was very transparent in my book and a faith-based filmmaker, uh, back in West Virginia, um, read my book and reached out to me and asked, Hey, would you like to make a movie out of this thing? And my first thought was, well, is it, is this legit? You know, so I had to do some research and it's like, OK, you know, he's got some films on Amazon Prime and other streaming platforms. It's like it's the real deal. So we talked and it eventually evolved into um, he and I writing the script. And, um, you know, I didn't know what that entailed uh, or anything, but it's a back and forth type of thing um, where, you know, he writes stuff. I cross it out. I add my stuff. And then he has his creative ideas that, you know, he wanted to implement. So um, once the script was approved, um, it went into production um, last year. Um, I want to say it was spring. Yeah, it was springtime of last year when they first started filming back in West Virginia. Now, the funny thing about it is my entire career was spent in, in California. West Virginia looks nothing like California. It's very lush, very green, um, you know, lots of rolling hills, lots of trees, different type of terrain. So we did the best that we could. Um, but I was there for every day of, of filming. I think the first wave of filming was uh, nine days. And then I flew back in September of last year to do to complete it, the, the second phase of filming. And I think that was five or six days. So it was really interesting being involved in, in something like that. Um, you know, trying to get the uniforms just right and, you know, help make the scenes accurate. Um, I learned that that you have to be really on top of it because there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot going on. And if you're not paying attention, you know, like the producer or the director, they can slip stuff by you. That's that's <laughs> not exactly you know exactly accurate. So um, just paying attention. You know, we were using um, real firearms on set. 
fortunately, no one was uh, maimed or killed in the filming of that that production. Um, we had uh, I had a, a former FBI agent who now is a federal prosecutor. So she she has experience with firearms. I have experience with firearms. So we, we had this check and balance thing that we did. Anytime an, an actor or an ex, extra got a firearm, we checked and cleared it and double checked and then, you know, showed it to the the person we were passing the firearm off to. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, getting uniforms set up and patches sewn on the right size shirt for the next person that's supposed to wear a uniform. And um, it was really interesting, really interesting. I love all the details because we would never know that. And we're such a Hollywood, we've grown up with all these movies and we never see the other side. Right. I mean, if you see a making of movie, all you get to see is the stunts and the five minutes here and five minutes there. So even that doesn't give you the reality of these projects and what goes into it before the cool filming part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were literally, we were doing like 12 and 14 hour days on, on set at different locations. And um, one thing I learned is that uh, not everything makes it into the film. I mean, probably 50% of what we filmed was cut, cut out at editing. Right. So yeah, the final cut, the final cut was very short. I think we had like 16 hours of film and it got whittled down to a 65 minute production. So. One of the reasons I'm super excited about the movie is that so many people don't read books. Right. And so many of us now writing books that now there is some talk, there is a consistency. You're hearing the same stories over and over and over again with the, you know, we cried out, but there was no support. Or when we did, our brothers and sisters bullied us, or we were made fun of, or we lost our job. Like the 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 truth of it, the consistency of the patterns is visible, but only if you look for it, only if you go looking for those books in those particular categories where film reaches everyone. Mm -hmm. And there's a new interest in police work in the media right now. It's actually a Hollywood trend right now to create movies that, that depict more, more intimate police interaction stuff. So to get a real, a real story out there in that mix when people are actually interested in seeing it is gonna be so tremendously valuable to the mission and to the conversation. So do you feel, do you feel that pride and that joy when you see it? Uh, you know, I, uh, yes and no, actually. Um, you know, to me, it's like, it's not a big Hollywood production. You know, we, we did it with a relatively low budget. You know, Dean Kane had to get paid, of course. You know, he's a SAG actor. There were several SAG actors, you know, on set and, you know, after they're paid, it's like, okay, what's left over goes towards purchasing of, you know, costumes and different items for the different sets and whatnot. So we may do with, with what we had. Um, but to me, it's about the message that that film is all about the message, um, that you don't have to suffer in silence anymore. Uh, in fact, that it's, it's, uh, um, really in in today's you know we're getting better but in today's climate there's there's i don't want to say there's no excuse um to suffer in silence anymore because people like like you and me and others many others are coming out and, and talking about it now and bringing awareness to it um but that film is all about the message um you know, what I really what I really did when I self imploded a little over three years ago was I, I started re acquainting myself with my spirituality, with my early Christian faith, you know, that I was raised with as a kid. And I tapped into that. And then from there, um, everything kind of blossomed. It's like, OK, I need to pay pay attention to the spiritual component of my life. Um, the mental and emotional 
um, social and the physical aspects of my life. Um, you know, they call it the, the four pillars of resilience. Um, and I like to keep it simple. I like to keep it down to the four pillars. You know, there are some models that are six pillars and eight pillars. And for me, it's, it's what works is the basic stuff. And that's what brings balance uh, into my life. I love that. Everyone is different. Some people like yeah. that, like nuanced complexity. I want to, you know, look at all these different things separately. And some people are like body, mind, spirit. Right. Right. We'll call it good. All those other things fall into those categories anyway. So sure. <laughs> they'll be addressed. So tell us, you've already kind of segued there a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your childhood. Did you always know you wanted to be an officer? You know, what was your family life like? What was little Keith like? <laughs> <laughs> little Keith was a, a goofy little kid. Um, I was raised by a Lutheran minister. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom until I think I was 10. And then she went back into the workforce. So when I was little, you know, my role model was my dad. And I used to just assume that I was going to become a pastor just like him. And then um, I started watching cop shows on TV as a, a little guy, and I became fascinated by it. And, and then I was hooked. It's like, man, this looks like an exciting job. You know, I can make a difference and, and all that stuff. And um, I joined the Police Explorers as a teenager when I was uh, 16 in, in high school. Started going on ride-alongs and, and all of that. And um, I was hooked after that. I knew that's absolutely what I wanted to do was go into a law enforcement career. So you've um, never actually known anything else? No, not really. Um, and what's kind of funny is when I was, you know, I was hired at a very young age as a, as a, a recruit and then a police officer. I was 20 and a half in the academy. I turned 21 in the police academy. And so when I hit the streets with my training officer, I was a young 21-year-old kid with not a lot of life experience. You know, you asked me what was, you know, young Keith like. Young Keith was sheltered. My dad was, you know, again, he was a Lutheran pastor and I had a stay-at-home mom. So they tried to protect me from the outside world, you know, all of the, the bad stuff. And uh, when I got out into the, the mean, cruel world, you know, as a young police officer, I got to experience firsthand, you know, what the real world's really like. Um, and it's not always pretty. Is there something that stands out for you in those early days? What was the like first shocking experience for you where you actually went, oh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be like, whoa, I didn't expect this. You know, I, there was really nothing off the table. Um, you know, I, I was a police explorer and then a police cadet. So I, you know, was in a paid position for like a year and a half while I was attending community college. Um, so I worked around and with the police, you know, at a young age, and I saw a lot of things on, on ride-alongs. Um, you know, I guess, like, I remember my first homicide. I wrote about it in my first book. Um, it was a, a lady that was uh, shot with a shotgun by, she was a maid, a housekeeper. And um, um, her, her employer that had a disagreement with her. He was drunk. He took out a double barrel shotgun and, and shot her in the chest and killed her. And she died right there on the, the kitchen floor. So when we got to the scene, she was in a, a puddle of coagulated blood. He had let her you know, die out and bleed out on the kitchen floor while he went out into the living room and drank more for a couple of hours and then decided to call 911. Um, so, and this was in 86 when 911 was a new thing. Um, so, you know, I just remember the look on her face. It, it was like her, her eyes were like really big. Her eyes were still open. And to me, the, the expression on her face was like, I can't believe you just shot me right. and now I'm dying, you know? 
So I remember that. I mean, I knew I'd deal with homicides and death and stuff um, and horrific car crashes and, and whatnot. But I think the first time that, you know, I mean, I always knew there was a possibility that, that I could be involved in a shooting and, and have to use lethal force. Um, but, but that actually came um, 11 years later, 11 years down the road. Um, when I was a, I was a brand new sergeant and I had been promoted for you know, like six months prior to my first actual officer involved shooting. Um, and it was kind of shocking at first. It's, you know, it was a foot pursuit of a domestic violence suspect behind a church. Um, I started my career in Southern California and then went up to Northern California. So I was in Northern California at, at that time, um, working for the Butte County Sheriff's Department. And uh, May 21st of 1997. Um, so one of my deputies and I were chasing this guy on foot uh, behind a church and going into a field. Uh, Randy, my deputy was in front of me and um, you know, we had our, our high beams from our cars and our spotlights on the guy, but then he bolted. So now we're running out into the darkness. It's getting very hard to see. And I could see the back of Randy, my deputy, um, in front of me, like um, probably 70 feet ahead. And then the guy we were chasing was probably another 20 feet in front of Randy. And uh, we lost, well, I don't know what Randy saw, but I lost sight of the bad guy. And the next thing I see is the night sky getting illuminated by muzzle flash. So the guy's now shooting at us and, and it's turned into a running gun battle. Um, after the, the first uh, shots, you know, the speed of light always travels faster than the speed of sound. So it's like I see the muzzle flash and then I hear the concussion of, of the gunfire. And it was kind of one of these moments like, oh, I can't believe this is really happening right now. You know, it's like, oh, this is the big one. And then Randy goes down. I saw Randy go down um, in front of me. And I'm like, okay, he's, he's hit. Um, and now there's rounds going past my head. I need to do something. So, you know, I dropped to the ground. Um, we were running in like this tall, dry grass and brush in the field. And I figured, okay, if I drop in the brush and then roll, and then pop up, you know, five feet away from where he last saw me drop. If I pop back up in a different location and try to get a good shot, um, you know, he won't be expecting me to come up. I had no cover. There was nothing to stop the bullets, but I had concealment by being in that, that tall dried grass. So uh, sadly, the long story in, in that was, um, uh, Randy and the suspect were both killed, and then I was the uh, lone survivor um, in that whole ordeal. So survivor's guilt is a very real thing. Right, and that was before we had cameras on all the uniforms. So right. then there's a, did they, they investigated everything to make sure that you were, that oh, you yeah. were solid and. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's. You don't see that on the cop shows on TV, right? It's like, oh, I got into another shooting today. And then I went, you know, I went and had dinner. And it's like, no, um, I was driven to the station by one of my deputies. Um, I was sequestered um, in an office. Um, uh, my other deputy that was on the original call with me, um, this all started at a house and then it filtered out into the street and, and that deputy was sequestered and, you know, seated in another office. And then they called it the rollout shooting team. It was a multi-agency uh, team that was comprised of uh, district attorney investigators, a deputy DA, and then members of my department and other municipal police departments in the county. So, uh, then I had to be interviewed and 
you know, I uh, think my, my shift started at 3 p.m. that day, and then I got home at like 8 a.m. the following morning. Was there any trauma debriefing that occurred during that? You know, they did the best that they could. Um, they had like a rap session uh, a few days later. Um, you know, that particular agency hadn't lost a deputy in um, decades, decades. Um, so this was the, that was the first one in, in decades. Uh, they didn't really know how to deal with it. So they just, you know, had a bunch of us go into the briefing room and talk about it, talk about Randy and cry it out. And then one night uh, in the church parking lot where the incident occurred, um, there was a candlelight vigil, you know, and some people said a few, you know, kind words about Randy and whatnot, because he was a, an awesome guy. He was really a, really a good guy. Um, but yeah, uh, and then I got sent two weeks later to a department psychologist, a contract psychologist, and I told him everything that he wanted to hear so that he'd let me, you know, go back to work. Because right. I, you know, if if you fall off the horse, what do you do? You get back on it and ride it again, right? And that's all I knew. I mean, I started my career at a very young age. I had 11 years into it. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to forfeit my uh, retirement just because of, you know, a shooting that I was involved in. Um, so. You know, I told the psychologist, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sad. It's a horrible thing, but, you know, I'm ready. You know, I, I knew that this was part of the job and it could happen. And, you know, told him everything he wanted to hear. Yeah. So with that, he ticked all the boxes and cleared me to go back to work. And then, you know, it's the same thing day in and day out, night in and night out. Yes. So was there anything that was really obvious to you? I know I, I talked to a lot of folks that have been through this journey and they loved their jobs and their jobs were awesome and they have 20, 30 year careers and they were struggling most of the time, but they didn't realize until like, until everything breaks, you don't even mm -hmm. notice there's a fracture. You don't even notice the cracks. There's nothing up until that point. So did you notice the onset? Did you experience any like, this isn't right? This is something's wrong here. What was your experience with that like? Yeah, this is how uh, out of touch I was with my own feelings. Um, you know, alcoholism is a progressive disease. You know, it's a progression. And when you're working in a, a career such as law enforcement, you become desensitized by, by certain things. And then there are certain traumatic events that stay with you forever, but you just kind of push through it. So that's what I did. I stuffed everything down, stuffed it way back into the dark corners of my mind, but it, it was always there. It was playing like a broken record. And it was a progressive thing where it's like, oh, uh, you know, another traumatic, horrible thing just happened. Stuff it in the back of my mind. You know, it's like, oh, a week later, another one. Stuff it into the back of my mind. So I knew that I I, I felt crappy a lot of the time. Um, and then I was having sleepless nights. Um, you know, after the incident in, in 97, the, the first shooting, um, you know, I was having the PTSD dreams. Um, you know, uh, where I'd start to doze off and, and I'd hear and see gunfire and then I'd awaken immediately. Um, so that went on for a while, but I just pushed through it. You know, law enforcement was all I knew. Um, you know, sadly, that was my identity because that's what I wanted to do at a very young age. So it's, you know, it wasn't what I did. It's who I was. Um, I love my job, 
but what I tell students of mine, I teach a class up at Northern Arizona University called Psychological Survival for Law Enforcement. I tell my students, you know, you may love your job, but the job doesn't love you back. The job is, yeah, it's it's made up of people, but it's an inanimate object. It can't love you back. So um, uh, that's where I was heading with that, was that I didn't really know that anything was wrong with me. Post-traumatic stress wasn't a buzz phrase, you know, like it is now. After the war in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, when these guys started coming back, um, you know, you started hearing the, the term PTSD, and then some people say PTSI now for post-traumatic stress injury. And, you know, I call it, I don't care what you call it because it, it doesn't identify me. It doesn't like label who I am. It's like, yeah, I have a diagnosis, my diagnosis. Um, you know, yeah, I had to work through it, post-traumatic stress, but, you know, what you call it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. But nobody knew what PTSI or PTSD or PTS was back in the late 90s. You didn't start hearing about it. So I knew I felt crappy and I needed to do something. So I just started self-medicating with alcohol. That was what I chose to do um, because that's what my training officers did in, in the mid eighties, you know, it's like, Oh, suck it up, kid. You know, a lot of my guy, my training officers were combat vets in the Vietnam era. So that's how they handled their problems is, you know, Hey, you know, have a few shots of whiskey and shake it off and, you know, go to work the next day. You'll be fine. So that's what I started to do. And then the drinking became progressively worse. And then, you know, I subsequently was involved in, in more, uh, horrific incidents. Um, you know, I was involved in another shooting in 2002 on a traffic stop. Um, I was pinned down by gunfire in 2008 on an Indian reservation. Um, not just me, but, you know, a handful of, of deputies um, by some crazy, crazy people <laughs> with, uh, you know, one with an, one was armed with an AK-47. Um, and then the other was armed with a, uh, an SKS, which is a, uh, Russian made carbine. And, um, uh, you know, you, you had a lot of gunfire in a really, really short period of time. Yeah, a lot, a, a lot of that. <laughs> and when you see your life flash before your very eyes and you don't think you're going to make it home um, at the end of the day, it, it, it you know, <clears throat> it shocks the conscience. And when you have to use lethal force, um, you know, people think they may know, you know, everything from watching TV and documentaries. But until you have to pull the trigger, um, it, it really it sets you apart from the average herd, if that makes sense. Having to use lethal force um, and almost being killed, you know, not just on one one occasion, but multiple occasions. You know, I I wasn't a one and done. You know, I know guys who've been in a, a single shooting and they you know, uh, and I'm not minimizing that, but they just, you know, they, they can't handle it. They get, they suffer PTS from, from that one singular incident. Um, mine was what they call cumulative stress, where it compounded over a period of not, not just years, but decades um, of doing this type of work and being in, you know, being involved in multiple critical incidents. Um, and then, you know, finally, one day in post-retirement, I just couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, you know, all my friends seemed to be dying. You know, my dad died six months after my dad died. My father-in-law died. Um, several close personal friends died. And um, in May of 2019, you know, I was at my my wit's end. Um, I was drinking, um, you know, uh, copious amounts of alcohol. To, you know, I had periods of long-term sobriety, but then, you know, something would happen. 
a traumatic incident or, or a death. And then, you know, I went to my old go-to, the bottle. And then finally that wasn't working anymore. And I realized that I needed to make real change, real significant change. And that's when I made a conscious decision to do something about, you know, suffering in silence and about the alcohol. So, you know, I'm living my best life now, but it, 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 it was a long road in getting here. So let's talk for a minute about moral injury, because coming from the, the religious background that you come from and having multiple experiences with having to shoot at someone and with that first one that you were essentially responsible for taking that person's life, was that? Actually, Randy, Randy was the one. Gotcha. Randy got some rounds off and Randy's Randy hit him. And then the suspect actually finished himself off with his own pistol. So you didn't have to process that. No. That's good. That's good. But still, in that context, do you feel that your religious upbringing, did that affect the way that you felt about having to shoot at someone? Or No. um, It it shocks the conscience, but morally, um, I was okay. Um, you know, I, I respect the sanctity of life, but when someone's trying to take me out, you know, right. uh, I, you know, I'm going to go home at the end of my shift, God willing, and, and be with my family. So morally, I felt uh, justified. Um, you know, apparently the district attorney's office did too, because if I was in the wrong, you know, right. I, would, you know. I know a lot of a lot of the folks that I talk to talk about how no no matter how much they had to do it, there's that that self judgment afterwards. What does this make me? Because you know, I I have this belief that I'm never supposed to take life, but the reality is that I have to take life to save life. So right. which is which is the the right thing to do? And then they struggle with that guilt and that shame that goes along with that. So sure. I just wanted to to. We d- I don't often get a chance to to bring these topics up to people who may not have an understanding that it's not like, like you said, it's not like that happens and we just go home at the end of the night and just go to sleep perfectly like a baby and go, oh, well, that was an interesting day. Yeah. <laughs> it's There's so much more depth to the reality of, of the job and to the experiences. And I really want our community, if people who don't know anyone who does a job like this to have an opportunity to to hear the struggles to hear the the depth of pain that exists just doing this work and the things that you see and the things that you experience um i think it's really valuable especially in our our current political climate where there's a little bit of resistance to following rules and there's a little resistance to respect and yeah thank you know (laughs) i always try to not to be political and not to you know get to get too deep on those things but our society is having some challenges and it makes the officer's job a lot harder than it has to be and maybe if more people understand that it's not a power trip that officers aren't there just they're they're there to keep the peace and to protect people and if we all follow the rules society is a safe place and if we don't if we think that we don't have to it becomes dangerous very quickly right absolutely so it's a needed a very needed role and and you're human and that's important yeah yeah, we're all uh, we're all human, you know. We eat, sleep, breathe, you know. We we love, you know, just like any other human being, you know. And everybody we bleed. Home. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, definitely a, a different uh, type of of profession, um, you know. And I don't want to take anything away from the firefighters either, because. You know, like these horrific car crashes and these, you know, homicides uh, and murder suicides that that we go on. The firefighters are there too. You know, right. firefighter paramedics. They're there to, you know, you know, do medical aid, save lives. So they're exposed to that as well. 
you know, maybe not the gunfire and all of that, which, um, you know, it, the whole shooting thing, it's, it's like a sensory overload, um, you know, because I can still see bright muzzle flash at night, you know, from, from the muzzle of my firearm, um, the muzzle of the bad guy's firearm. I can hear, I can hear the concussion of the gunfire. Um, you know, it, it really does, uh, a, a number on your senses because you're smelling the gunpowder, right. you know, you're hearing the concussion, you're seeing bright flashes and you're having to make, uh, critical decisions, um, with very little time. Um, so yeah, you probably react to like sulfuric, anything that smells sulfury and like my personal, I, I worked in an emergency room and, and did accident scenes and stuff. So for me, it's like pennies, copper, anything that's really coppery will trigger mm -hmm. that. Like that it, it's almost a, it's time to be in, it's time to be working that like high, there's stress, but it's more of a, okay, I'm on now. What do I need to do? Kind of stress. Yeah. And it's the weirdest thing because if people think you're like crazy when things like that trigger you, like counting pennies, I can't, I can't, don't give me a jar of change and expect me to be able to put them in rolls. Mm -hmm. I, I can't do it. So wow. it's triggers <laughs> are not necessarily what you think they're going to be. Right. So people who don't understand are like, what, what? what's your issue? <laughs> like i'm what's wrong with you you crazy yeah. person yeah it's a really big deal just can't explain it you know just please please honor that i say this is something i i'm not going to do i can't do and there's a really good reason for it it doesn't right. have to make sense to you <laughs> just respect this weirdo thing that i have to avoid for sure yeah so yeah i post-traumatic stress is such a multifaceted, multi-layered complicated thing and when you have a diagnosis, it's just like your job. It becomes an identity. So mm -hmm. we can break it down to symptoms and just break it down to, okay, what are you experiencing? What's happening in your life that you don't like? And what would you rather be experiencing? And we can address those things one at a time. I think we have a lot better chance of getting to the place we want to be instead of going, oh, crap, I have PTSD. Well, that's a life sentence. I'm always going to have PTSD. It's just going to be mm -hmm. like this. Like there's no, yeah. hope. there's no cure, right? We say that all the time. There's no cure for PTSD. Right. Well, because PTSD doesn't actually exist. <laughs> it's it's well, a can, bunch of different you, things all together with a label on top. You can manage it, however, you know, and, and get treatment, you know, that you really can get better. You can start to heal. Um, you know, because, for instance, I knew that uh, the drinking, my drinking exacerbated my post-traumatic stress and the post-traumatic stress exacerbated the drinking. Right. Um, you know, the drinking worked for a while until it didn't. You know, I plateaued and then hit a wall and, you know, it stopped working and it just made everything worse. It made everything about my life worse. So I have this out of control, you know, post-traumatic stress and this drinking that's starting to get really out of control. So I knew that I had to get help for both. It's like, I can't just treat one and not the other. So it's like, okay, I need to get into AA. I need to do the deal. I need to be all in. Um, I need to go to therapy. Um, for my post-traumatic stress issues, um, and that included talk therapy. And for me, um, they incorporated EMDR into that. And uh, I had tremendous uh, success with EMDR. Um, and, you know, I live a blessed life now, um, but I, I am much more self-aware now than, than I used to be. I'm much, much more in tune with what makes me tick. And I have the realization that I'm, I'm only one drink away from going off on a, a week-long binge or um, if I really do a deep dive into my depression when, when something bad happens, um, I, you know, I'm off on another PTS, you know, 
moment. And, uh, you know, I, so I learn skills, you know, I have different resources now that I use to, um, you know, abstain from drinking and, and keep the uh, post-traumatic stress at bay. And those four pillars of resilience that I mentioned earlier, that's what keeps me balanced every day. I have, I have to pay attention to my, my mental, physical, social, and spiritual well-being every day. I do it daily because if I don't, and, and even if one of those pillars um, gets out of whack, you know, the four pillars work in congruency with each other in unison. So when, when let's say I, I stop going to the gym, you know, and I'm not working out for a week or two, I can feel it. And then because I'm not working out, I'm not getting the good, you know, seven to eight hours of sleep a night that I should be. And that's affecting my, my mental health, you know, the mental pillar, because I don't have the clarity, you know, and, and it just, it's like a snowball effect. Yes. And it, like what we're talking about here, if we can talk about the pillars generically, like you have mm -hmm. to exercise, but that creates different neurochemicals and it creates different nervous system arousal. And like there's literally it's not just your thoughts, feelings and emotions. It's literal physical and chemical. The body and a brain, mm -hmm. the nervous system needs certain things to change for the reactivity that's happening to change. So it's not just a matter of willpower and it's not just a matter of I have to choose to do, I have to choose to not have PTSD. It's you have to recognize that each of these pieces of resilience, each of these pieces plays a part in managing your chemical and physiological balance so, so there's literally science behind it what you're doing is you're creating absolutely. a healthy environment where your brain is functioning normally again for absolutely the more absolutely normally. yeah you know? yeah you know and sometimes you know there are those who are diabolically opposed to um you know getting on medication um i am not one of those um i take a very very low dose um of an ssri you know every day um, 20 milligrams. And, um, it just, it just keeps me balanced and stable and, um, you know, it, it really helps, but it's a holistic approach. You know, it's a low dose of the med and then, you know, um, going to therapy, you know, and over a period of time, the therapy is really, um, thinned out. You know, I was going like, you know, early on, I was going once a week, and then it was uh, once every other week and then once a month. And now I'm down to about uh, once every three or four months, you know, just a, a check in, a wellness check type of thing with my therapist. But, you know, doing the deal, the AA, the therapy, the focusing on those four pillars and, and the low dose of medication. Um, and it really helps to bring balance to my life. I am so focused now and so grateful and blessed um, that, you know, I found the light at the end of the tunnel. There are those who go through this and they're going to die a miserable, lonely uh, death of depression. You know, and I'm, I'm glad I'm not that guy. That's why I'll talk to anyone who will listen, you know, if it'll help them. Because, you know, if it could help a stubborn guy like me, <laughs> It, it, it might just work for other people too. Right. Right. That's why I do this. That's why I do this show is because I have the experience. I know what it feels like, but I'm older than I look, but for some reason, most people think I'm like 28 or something. So I don't have the credibility with men. It takes a while to build that trust and that, that, the Jeep helps a lot. It's a great access point. But <laughs> I have to get to know you before you open up to me. So sure. to show stories of strong men who are in the field, who have done these things, who have gone through the process, who can say, it's not one thing that's going to fix you. Therapy is not enough. 
Right. You actually have to choose to change the way you live your life. And you have to see that there's different layers and you have to address all those different layers. And every day you still have to choose it. You have to choose to live your life in a balanced way. Absolutely. Or things go out of balance. That's and, right. You know, it's a, you're a tire rolling down the hill. So if things are out of balance, that's a really big problem. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you don't get a lot of leeway to go out of balance because things go very haywire when we get out of balance. But being a small female, it, it's much harder for me to get the message across to a lot of our folks, especially military personnel. Mm -hmm. So this is meant to make sure that everyone can hear the message and that I'm not screaming it off the rooftops, you know, alone on this podcast, that there's so many out here with the same story and the same yeah. tools and the same resources, and they're inexpensive and accessible. And there's a ton of different nonprofits out here willing to hand you these tools. Mm -hmm. So if I don't work for you or Keith doesn't work for you, or the therapist that you're seeing right now doesn't work for you. You have to love yourself enough to reach out for another tool, to reach out for another resource. Because absolutely, a lot of times the story is I tried, I went to therapy, and you know they laughed at me, or they cried when I told them my story, or you know I felt like I had to take care of the therapist, or you know there was something in that relationship that didn't work. So now I'm traumatized by my by my therapy. I'm never going to do that again. Yeah, that that crap doesn't work. Right. If that was your experience. That was just a, a relationship that wasn't meant to be. You didn't you weren't a good match for each other. So mm -hmm. there's thousands upon other there's thousands upon other people that you can go to that have someone is the right match that will give you the keys that you need for your absolutely. Life. Absolutely. So it's experimentation. Yeah. <laughs> experimentation. Yeah. Keep trying until you get it right. You know, uh, I, I'm blessed to have the, the guy that I, you know, have right now. Uh, he's he's excellent. Um, but but another thing I might add also is that, um, you know, to the listeners, you know, if you're going through something, don't don't do it alone. Uh, that's what I did for many, many years. I kept everything stuffed inside and I didn't talk to anybody about how I was feeling. I put a fake smile on every day and, and went to work. Um, you know, reach out for that hand of help. There are people who, who truly do care. Um, and that's part of that, that social pillar, um, is, uh, and I teach it in, in my class, um, uh, is fostering, nurturing, and developing those relationship relationships with the people you care about the most, you know, your close friends and your family, um, people who validate you, um, and cut the crap, get rid of the toxic relationships that are no good for you. You know, even if the, even if the, the rep person is a family member, you know, you got to uh, cut that, that toxic, those toxic ties, because those people don't, they don't validate you. They don't add value to, to who you are in the relationship. Um, cut it out. So surround yourself with, with, you know, good quality people, good, solid people. So do please message me your, um, your person that you trust to work with the therapist, uh, on our website, we are working on putting together a resources list of those that have been recommended by first responders to work right. with first responders and can handle the situations and the We've heard too many stories of therapists that are not trauma prepared and are not first responder trained. And that's a very different thing. And it's not a natural, like just because they're a therapist does not mean they're fit for oh, absolutely. the process. So yeah. if we can get a really good list of, of people who are, it makes it a lot easier for people to find those who are proven so that we have less of these bad experiences and people who stop seeking care because I, I feel like that's a trap a real travesty. It's it's very sad to hear when people call a hotline and they're on hold for three hours. Oh yeah. And I just no, I just can't. <laughs> he's excellent. You know, uh, he was I'm a veteran too, but you know, a veteran of uh, California National Guard. Um, so I was a traditional guardsman, 
while I was a full-time police officer. Um, but my therapist um, used to be a therapist with the VA um, here in Prescott, Arizona, where I live. So um, he definitely has a, a background with uh, dealing with, with military folks. And Yes, perfect, perfect. Yeah. That would be great. You might want to just double check with him and make sure that he wants to be on the list because you might get more phone calls than he wants. But if he's <laughs> open and receptive to that, um, I would like to definitely add him there. And before we go, shameless plug, go ahead and talk about your books and your movie and how people can find them. Oh, sure. So let's see. Um, this, this book, that's my first. There it is. That's the first one from Sorrow to Amazing Grace. Um, this one's obsolete now. Um, I came out with a second edition uh, that was released the, the first week of May. So the front cover is uh, kind of a military green and cinnamon brown um, with a sword and shield on the front. And there's added content in this one. Um, so this one brings more value, I think to the reader. The first one was my first book. So it's like, oh, I need to get this out to help people. And now that I've been able to, to learn some more things and, and hone in on and refine my skills, um, I came out with the second edition. And then about three weeks after that was released, um, I released uh, Gunrunner, which is uh, an amazing story. Um, and it has nothing to do with me. Um, a, uh, police officer from Massachusetts found me. Um, we have a mutual friend that I worked with in Southern California. She was injured on the job and uh, had to medically retire. So she moved back to Massachusetts where her family's from. And, um, she met Mario Oliveira, um, and he was looking for someone to write his story. And she's like, Hey, I have a guy. So he reached out to me and told me his incredible story. He was shot six times in the line of duty, um, suffered, you know, uh, he, he died on the operating table three times, had a spiritual experience, um, dealt with, you know, severe depression and, and post-traumatic stress um, when he came out of, uh, you know, in, into recovery, suffered a heart attack, a stroke. I mean, the guy's been through it all. Um, and then his surgeon that operated on him has a has an amazing story. So once I heard the story and I watched a video interview of him and the doctor, I'm like, oh, how could I not be a part of this amazing story? So um, I wrote the book. It's doing well. It was a bestseller for a while and the number one new release in like psychology and Christianity. Um, and uh, we signed with a, a producer in Los Angeles. She's a retired FBI agent now, um, major movie producer. And um, so it's, if this thing does come to fruition, it's going to be a, a big, big production, bigger than my first film. <laughs> um, yeah. And my, my story, One Cop's Journey, it's streaming on Amazon Prime right now. And um, so you can search for it on Amazon Prime and uh, check it out. That was released in April. It is well worth watching, folks. If you, especially if you are a family member of someone who serves in any capacity, a firefighter, an EMT, it brings more understanding and awareness to how to support your person. Um, and, and I feel like it's a, the part in the film where you actually address that and that conversation is had a little bit with, you know, how do, how do I have this conversation? You know, was, it, I was really happy to see that because that's one of the things that we work, work with is how the relational aspect from both sides and mm -hmm. how different it is from other people's relationships, the needs, the needs and the communication and the connection are different. And we have to, prepare for that and respect that and learn how to support each other appropriately. And just to see that starting to come out is very exciting to me. Yes. <laughs> so, um, yes. I, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. 
And um, if you if you wouldn't mind connecting me with um, the gentleman that you wrote the book about, I would love to have him on here too. That would be awesome. I'd love for him to be on there. He's so, a he's a he's a fighter. He's a survivor, and he's a walking miracle. So I will send you his contact info uh, when we go offline. That'd be wonderful. Is there any last words you would like to leave people with? Before yeah, we absolutely. Um, to the listeners, just know that it's okay not to be okay. But what's not okay is knowing that you're not all right and you choose to do nothing about it. Not good. But there are people out there uh, who are more than willing to offer the hand of friendship and help and, uh, you know, don't let your pride or anything else get in the way. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, with like the, the whole Meghan Markle thing and Prince Harry, when they first started talking about mental health, um, there's a big push now within the past few years where, um, you know, people are finally talking about it and not just in small circles, you know, on, on the major networks. Um, like when I was working in the mid eighties, um, it wasn't cool to be talking about this. You would be viewed as a, you know, weak, but that's not the case. It takes a lot of courage to reach out. For sure. Thank you so much for being here with us tonight. It, just reach out anytime you need anything. I am always here. Likewise, Krista, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being here with us this evening. And please do check out those books. Do watch the movie. It is amazing. And thank you so much for following our podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and you're watching a uh, watching it after the live, there is a button down there that you can push that says support this podcast please do that. All the funds from this podcast do support our 501c3 nonprofit organization. And what we do with those funds is our Ferryman Project mission, which we create plaques for families of fallen heroes, especially those who die by their own hand or in off duty, where they are not given the memorial ceremonies. They're not put on the walls of the precincts and they don't have the big memorial statues outside that have everyone's name on them. So we take our 2020 Jeep Gladiator that carries the names of all of our folks on it um, all the way across the country. We deliver the plaques by hand always. So there's that human contact and that um, connection so that people feel honored and supported and know that we still care. We still remember and we will honor their loved one. So we will hold space at memorials that often are for the folks that are on the walls and on the statues. We will be there present holding space for your loved one who deserves that honor and respect for the light of their service is not diminished by their cause of death. So please do support us. We can't do this work without, without you. Um, we are a public nonprofit, so we don't have any external funds other than what you guys contribute to us. And we will continue this fight against the darkness. No one has to fight alone. Have a wonderful evening.